Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein. Did you ever wonder about competition and how to compete at the highest level? That's the topic for the day today. We're, we're talking to Mark Shapiro, who is the CEO, the president of the Toronto Blue Jays. And, uh, you know, we talk about competition. What does it take to actually be the best? And, and I find it fascinating. I've, I've always found it fascinating in many, many different fields. It's one of the reasons why um, I've always enjoyed the Olympics. I mean, maybe not as much as my brother Simon, who's fanatical about it, but uh, I've always enjoyed the Olympics because these are people that are dedicating their lives to be the absolute best at something, and they get one shot at it every four years. It's really kind of kind of amazing. It's the highest level of competition. And when we talk about professional sports of any type, it's not much different, and Major League Baseball is a good example. Uh, baseball, like a lot of sports, have uh, become uh, mega analytics, right? It's all about da- data analytics and different metrics. And I think one of the things that, that's starting to happen, maybe we're not quite there, but we're getting close is that almost every team understands analytics and every team has adopted analytics and so it becomes less and becoming less and less of a differentiator. So how do you, how do you win? How do you compete at the highest level? And one of the things we talk about with Mark, uh, with Mark Shapiro, uh, one of the things that I really find kind of, kind of amazing is, is his answer is culture. His answer is the culture of the organization and the culture of the team. And that's not the type of answer I ordinarily would think of uh, from people that are uh, running and playing at a, at a professional level in, in, in any sport. It is actually the type of answer I might imagine from the CEO of a, uh, of a large company or even of a startup where culture is almost always the biggest differentiator. But to hear the conversation in the world of sports is really uh, fascinating. Mark is just so uh, knowledgeable about, about this topic and, um, and talks about how he instills the, the, the culture of, of winning. How do you become better every day? What can you do personally be better than you were yesterday to continue to contribute is a, is, is a, a, great, uh, a great lesson for, uh, for business, for, uh, for professional sports, of course, and for, uh, for life as well. Um, Mark is uh, something of a leadership guru, so it's such a pleasure to talk to, uh, to, talk to him and, uh, and, and hear his views. And it's a good time also for, uh, for this podcast episode to be out because, of course, it's uh, baseball's all-star uh, uh, week. Uh, the all-star game is here, and um, that's exciting. And it was just a treat to be up in, uh, up in Toronto uh, at, um, at Rogers Stadium and, uh, and, and meet with Mark and talk to him about uh, his philosophy about, about, about baseball, his philosophy about sports, his philosophy about culture, and what it takes to compete at the highest, at the highest level. This is Sid Finkelstein, and welcome to the SIDCast. It's a pleasure to be sitting here in Rogers uh, Center, Rogers Stadium. Rogers Center, yeah. Rogers Center in Toronto uh, with Mark Shapiro, who is the guy that runs the Toronto Blue Jays and uh, has had a career in sports and in, and in baseball, and uh, um, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, welcome, Mark. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Uh, so, yeah, a, a, a career in sports, uh, a father that was very active in a, as a very well-known agent, among many other things that he's done over his, over his career. So what was it like growing up in, in the family? I mean, you had a lot of siblings, too, didn't you? I did, yeah. I'm one of four. Um, it was, you know, growing up with my dad, who was, until I was about 15 years old, was just uh, was a lawyer, a securities commissioner, taught law school, you know, uh-huh. so he was a law professor. Yeah. Um, and... And an avid baseball fan. So mm-hmm. baseball was part of the fabric of my childhood. My dad loved the game, loved mm-hmm. the sport. 
it was you know the center we had season tickets to the Oriole games growing up oh, in Baltimore yeah. Um, but all of a sudden, um, when I was about 14 or 13, the owner of the Baltimore Orioles, Gerald Hofberger at that time, mm-hmm. asked my dad to help a guy named Brooks Robinson, who's in the Hall of Fame, the, yeah. okay. 16 consecutive Golden Gloves, and he was an icon in Baltimore. So sure. any kid growing up there, you know, um, asked him to help him out of bankruptcy. He had, he had signed a fraudulent, he had signed a, a, a sponsorship deal with, with a sporting goods store that was fraudulent, and mm. they were coming after his assets. This was after? After he had retired? No, he was still playing. He was still Towards playing. the end of his career. Towards the end Those of his were career. days when, when even the Brooks Robinsons of the world were not getting paid anything like we talked exactly. about today. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, wow. it was. But so Brooks asked my dad to negotiate his last contract, and my dad, of course, was like, absolutely, this is the greatest thing in the world. You know, I'm like, sure. you know, he, at first he just helped him out of the, the sporting goods deal, yep. protected him, and Brooks said to my dad, I wish you were there 20 years ago. It was his last deal. And my dad and Brooks together went into business, and they ended up representing like the whole Oriole team. It's a very different era of sports, and he never was a full time agent. He was always still maintained a law firm, but had a mm-hmm. sports representation firm and some television personalities. And so, all of a sudden, the guys that I was leaning over the rail trying to get their autographs—you know, Eddie Murray, Cal Ripken oh, Jr., yeah. Jim Palmer—sure, you know these guys, Hall of Famers. All of a sudden, they're over at our house eating dinner at really? our house. Were yeah. you? Were you? Is this the era when? The Orioles, they had four 20-game winners. Is that right? So Around they that did. time, that Palmer was, was one Mc, of them. Palmer, Quayar, McNally, that was before this. That was before. This, yeah, this was just about when the Orioles you know, lost to the uh, Dave Parker and Willie Stargell Pirates, Pirates in 1979. So it was that era. Yeah. You know, that era. So they were coming over to your house, and uh, how so old were, were you? Like, you were I was just, like 15, 16 years old, so and we had, yeah. there was a guy named Mike Boddicker, who, if you look back, was the MVP of the ALCS in 1983, and... He and his wife, Lisa, were living on the pull-out couch in our family room because he was a late, he came to the big leagues late, didn't have any money. And so all of a sudden, that window into the game became more than just fandom and became people and, and really an association with some of the inner beauty of the game and the thinking of the game. And yeah. Uh, a little more personal for me, obviously. Right, right. So what what do you think about um, what has happened to baseball? We'll go back to kind of how you got into it, but you made me think about a different era. And do you, do you recall or know what you know the top players in the league were getting paid in those days? Well, all I know is my dad, I think, did the first million-dollar contract in the history of the game for Kirby Puckett, and it was mm-hmm. a huge deal. So Kirby's a Hall of Minnesota. Famer, too. Yeah, Minnesota. Yeah. Um, and... You know, that was a huge deal. And so a million dollars is, you know, well below the average salary now. And so, I, I listen, everything in life just you don't really reflect and kind of think, yeah. well, in the good old days. I, I do remember my first year with the Cleveland Indians. I believe our payroll was like nine and a half million dollars, the whole payroll. Wow. You know, and now there's probably you know, uh, a couple hundred players that make over $9 million a year individually. A couple so hundred players. I would imagine. Yeah. I don't know what the exact number is. or maybe a hundred players sure. that make over $9 million. A lot. But, um, so the game is, has, has changed, but so has the, the kind of the, our cultural thirst for entertainment mm-hmm. and, you know, the sophistication mm-hmm. with which entertainment mm-hmm. is distributed and the value of programming and content. And if you really... Yeah you know, regress out, you know, why players are getting paid, you know, mm-hmm. if you think about what the Rolling Stones made on a tour in 1975 and what they would make on a tour now, right. um, it's, it's really in what, you know, a television talk show host 
made back then and what Oprah Winfrey would make if she went back on air now. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's, it's very similar. It's really entertainment. Right. You know, and, more what, than and what has happened, I think, and, and this has happened in a lot of industries, is a winner-take-all has happened. The, the best get paid um, an incredible amount of money. Right. Um, and if you didn't quite get to the best, I, I'm wondering in baseball, you know, there is a floor and there's, you know, collective bargaining. And so um, um, players that are lower down in the totem pole still do well by the average person thinking about it. But there's a by winner the take all, person. you know, is, uh, is true. It's true in academia, you know. Um, it's certainly true in corporate, the corporate world. And the middle class, I think you'll see in the next CBA negotiation, the middle class in baseball is kind of going away right now. I think that What, the, what does that mean? So the, with, with the sophistication of... Uh, analysis and the, uh, and to much to my chagrin, the escalation of intellect in front offices throughout Major League Baseball. It's a much more sophisticated, much more data-driven, much more informed yeah. decision-making process with a much better uh, understanding of how bias had formerly impacted mm-hmm. moves. So in, in, the, in the very simplest of kind of mm-hmm. uh, articulation, um, it's gone from paying from the name on the back of the jersey and a baseball card to paying for future performance. So the game has really shifted in my trajectory of time frame. In the past, you would have had front office executives pay for what player did in the past. Right. His tr- and, and whereas now we have very sophisticated projection systems right. that kind of project. And, and by removing bias and more, more making a more informed decision about performance moving forward... Um, you know, we are not paying the veteran player, you know, the declining player, what we used to pay them. Is this one of the reasons, maybe the primary reason why there are all these free agents? Probably still some that never signed. I'm not sure where we're at now. but Absolutely, yeah, yeah. that's precisely why. Yeah. So younger players are valued more now. Mm-hmm. Because um, they've got, their upside is in front of them. Their best years are ahead of them. Absolutely. They're, yeah. they're, you know, they're increasing in their performance, mm-hmm. even with a little more volatility, and it's clear that Older players, regardless of how fast, are declining. It's, so it's a, a really an anti-seniority policy. If, not in, I would think the policy is not. It's, it's more just, I would call it, it's more intelligent. It's not a policy that result, somebody just decides to do it. It's based on analytics, based on data, right. based on track record. Right. And the result is it's very, you know, it's insulting and it's tough emotionally for the veteran player to take. Yeah. Yeah. So you, um, I assume, would have been involved over the years in a lot of face-to-face negotiations. Oh, yeah. Certainly as a general manager, maybe now as president, CEO as well. Sure. Um, I mean, your life is negotiating regardless of whether you, uh, <laughs> regardless of what you're negotiating. But, yeah, it's, it's a daily daily part of the job. Yeah. And so could you describe, because not too many people are sitting in that room when that's going on. Yeah. Uh, can you describe what that looks like? Uh, who's in the room, for example? Yeah. Uh, is it right here in this room or is it in the in the office of the agent or in their home, home of the player? Right. Well, I think it's it, it had that also has evolved, you know, from being a more folksy kind of conversation, yeah. you know, when I first started and probably my first years as GM, whether it was with another GM over a trade. Um, or whether it was with an agent over a contract or, you know, some other, you know, opportunity for negotiating Mm -hmm. a rights fee deal or anything like that that might come up. Um, What's happened now is it's a much more sophisticated process Mm -hmm. where I think it does involve some back and forth. Everything, and I think this is actually probably somewhat 
uh, disappointing to me, but everything is less personal and everything is much more digital and much more electronic. So mm -hmm. whether it's trades that are happening over text messaging between GMs yeah. um, and the same thing with, you know, negotiations often occur over text or email mm -hmm. back and forth. There usually becomes a point when you're on the phone or you're face to face to close out a deal. And I think that's always more beneficial, mm -hmm. you know, because in the reality mm -hmm. of uh, of this business, maybe more than any other, there are only 29 other teams you could potentially make deals with. Right. And there's only a small, you know, stratosphere of agents you can deal with as well. So if you're not constructing a deal, you know, to with with keeping in mind that you want it to be a platform for the next deal, mm -hmm. then you're going to start to alienate your potential partners for either trades or so acquisition could account. you kind of unpack that a little bit? So you said, use the word platform, right? And alienate, um, these are competitors yes. that are part of the yeah. same community. Competitors, but, you know, I'm stealing from my dad here who wrote a book on negotiation, <laughs> you know, but you're, you're, you're really seeking kind of how can I help that other person win? You know, you're not, you're not looking necessarily to win a trade or to win a negotiation. So the more you understand who you're negotiating against mm -hmm. or negotiating with, mm -hmm. I think, better than, than against, yeah. the better opportunity you have to achieve your result, which mm -hmm. you want, but still find a win for that person right. that doesn't necessarily affect you Very detrimentally. So, of course, you know, different trades turn out. They turn out the way they turn out, and one of the two teams might make out there's many, many stories of that, whether they got lucky or smarter or what have you. <clears> right? um, uh, but that's okay because that can happen. It's You're talking about in the time of the negotiation, yeah. you know, um, are you trying to make a deal that seems like it's fair? And the reason why that's important compared to maybe some other negotiations is you're still in the same club. You're still dealing with the same people. Absolutely, and, yeah. And you want to be able to go back and do another deal with that person. Yeah. So I think your your characterization of it is is accurate and succinct and that is the reality is you know at the time and I, you pointed out a subtlety it takes a long time to know whether trades or even signs you need to wait for the body of work to kind of play out so a lot yeah. of times you know i can think back to trades in my career when mm -hmm. we traded um cliff lee it was largely panned for probably five or six years now mm -hmm. you look up and carlos carrasco is one of the best pitchers in the American yeah. League. Oh, that was actually a pretty good trade. The Indians have had him for a long he time. He came over in that trade. He came over in that trade. And if you go back and read the press for probably the the day we did it to probably the first four or five years after the trade, it yeah. was largely dismissed. as. Now, if you look at the surplus value, which is a way of kind of judging the value of the trade, the mm -hmm. return on wins that Carlos Carrasco gave us as, a, as opposed to the control we had left of Cliff Lee, yeah. that was a... An extremely financially business favorable trade for the Cleveland Indians. I mean, yeah. you know, one of the better ones probably I ever was a part of. So um, it does take time, mm -hmm. but at the time you make the deal, I think you want both people mm -hmm. feeling good about the deal. You know, you don't right. want someone feeling I just got worked over. So with Carlos Carrasco or anyone else, what's the key metric or that you look at? Is it uh, wins above replacement. Wins above replacement. You look see at, at the lack of a better you know, uh, ability to come up with one number yeah. that basically says, you know, what is his, you know, replace, what is his value mm -hmm. above having to go out and replace his performance in free agency? So you have a basic idea of what a win cost in free agency, mm -hmm. somewhere between eight and $10 million to buy a win in free agency. Not all wins are created equal. That's a whole other, you know, conversation. Wow. Wow. But um, you know, so a player that is you're getting that can give you one win above replacement or two wins above replacement mm -hmm. at a minimum salary, so it was a zero to three, 
is an extremely efficient player. And so you, you look at like a player like Cliff Lee who won the Cy Young, yep. and you're trading him, so he's probably a six-win player. I don't remember what he was at that mm-hmm. time. And you're saying, but we only have him for a year and a half, so that's about nine wins. And Carlos Carrasco, over the history of control the Indians have had him, has probably supplied the Indians you know, above replacement yeah. value you know, 50, 60, 70 wins or something like that. It's, it's just striking how you can, you know, pin down at this stage of the evolution of baseball, and it's pretty recent, I think, all of, all of what we're talking about, um, that you can pin down the value of a human being yeah. who's a so, baseball So player. here's the beauty of it. You can't. You know, you can't. I think that we have a much better ability to, um, to quantify and to give us directional information that would supply us with the ability to make a much better deal than we would have made when we were, when yep. we were making anecdotal gut-based decision-making. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the beauty of baseball, maybe um, contrasting it with almost any other business, is that our assets are human, and humans are by nature imperfect, yep. and they're non-quantifiable. Mm-hmm. So the best computer program, the best model mm-hmm. that exists in the world, mm-hmm. the smartest analysts that are out there, right. it's still just one piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. You're still going to have makeup, character, you know, personality. You're still going to have medical. Mm-hmm. You're still going to have all these non-quantifiable mm-hmm. things, which... Mm-hmm. We spend a lot of time trying to quantify right. and a lot of time thinking about yeah. how do we assess character, how do we develop character. Is that even possible? Yeah, I want to I ask you about that. Maybe we'll do that after, uh, after we take a short break because that's really fascinating. How do you know what somebody is worth in a, um, in a business or professional bottom line or financial way? And uh, baseball has gone further. All sports, I think baseball might be Baseball's a leader, other, yeah. Yeah, um, but every, every sport I could think of there... The, you know, analytics in really clever ways are are um, are mushrooming uh, up, but then there's this stuff about human nature, about yeah. characters. You say, Beautiful. and you also mentioned uh, injuries. So let's take a short break and come back and talk to Mark Shapiro about all these great issues. Be right back. Sometimes on the Sidcast, when we take these little breaks, the conversation continues and is so interesting. So we uh, we make sure we don't lose it, and that's the case here with uh, with Mark. So we're going to jump right uh, right back uh, where Mark talks about uh, the the process of uh, of learning and of getting better at everything that you do. Here's Mark. My process is like thinking that humility leads to openness needs to learning. You know, so if you stay humble, mm-hmm. you're always open minded. If you're always mm-hmm. open minded then you never know where you're going to learn from. It could be just a conversation in the elevator. It could be in an Uber. It could be, you know, interaction with an intern. It doesn't matter. You're you're not hierarchical in your thinking, Mm -hmm. and you're Mm open-minded, then you're going to continually learn. If you're continuing learning, you know, you're getting better. If you keep getting better, you're getting competitive. I'm I'm thinking about it competitively. So I try to scale that culturally. So a learning culture, my, my thinking is the ultimate competitive advantage is a learning culture. So that, that when in the cultures I try to build, yep. learning is the underpinning of the culture. Yeah, yeah. And so it's interesting you use the word humility, which I, I it's get the that. core of it to me. I, I, I get that. But then I'm thinking, well, what about curiosity? Just raw, good old-fashioned so, curiosity. Right. So curiosity would be, you know, I think when I think about, like, those, the, the attributes, you know, humility is kind of just the foundational piece. Mm-hmm. Like, if you start, if you, if you stay, if you start humble. Yeah then you're going to be more open-minded. But mm-hmm. in order to, to actually grow, you have to have curiosity, a thirst, a thirst for information yeah. and knowledge. And that's kind of that, that next step. What, what causes right. ignition? What causes yeah. you to kind I'm, of seek I'm, out? Uh, I've written about uh, 
confidence and humility as the t- as two sides where you need a mac- you need yeah. both because there's sometimes you got to yeah. be confident. There was an article in the New York Times about Steph Curry uh, that and they 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 quoted uh, Steve Kerr, the mm-hmm. coach, and he talked about how humble he was. Uh, but then he also says there were times in the game that he'll just take over and he'll. I'm making out the words that I'm sure you didn't say, buddy, but like destroy the game, kill the game, just right. totally dominate right. and take no prisoners. And he was able to do that at the same time, it would be so humble and combine both at the same time. Yeah. Pretty powerful combination. Yeah, humility, I think, keeps you improving and developing and getting better, but the, the confidence comes from preparation, right? So if you, mm-hmm. pre- if you prepare at an elite level and if your yeah. if if preparation is a different level of preparation, so yeah. if it's more yeah. you know, a conscious, you know... Right. A, mindful. Yeah, mindful. To use the word everyone uses. Yeah, or, I mean, if you think about Erickson, like, you know, in peak, you know, mm-hmm. you, it's more like that, yeah. you know, a certain type of preparation that's different from just yeah. practicing. It's deliberate practice, whatever right. you want to call it. Right. But those guys, you know, if you look at all those elite performers, they mm-hmm. usually practice at a very di- in a very different way yeah. um, with a different level of intent than mm-hmm. most people practice. Mm-hmm. You know, you can go out and play tennis mm-hmm. and just, you know, hit strokes yep. or you can dissect a swing <laughs> And think deliberately about okay, my first movement. You know, when I pull the racket back, how am I mm-hmm. pulling it back? When I have my good strokes, you know. And so there's an yeah. awareness that a guy like Steph Curry has that enables him to be so confident when he's actually performing. Yeah. You know, in the moment. But that all is. So have you seen ball players over the years um, when you talk about preparing differently? You've seen that among. Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, you, you the the this kind of stereotype is. Uh, how many hours they'll put in, which is more than everyone else, even though they're the stars. But it's not the hours; it's the it's you know the hours almost are a uh, so the hours are almost a false you know mm-hmm. house that you know a player yeah. can revert to, and yeah. it almost usually causes injury more than anything uh-huh. else. So it's more for me like how purposeful we 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 to, we to, to not use the word deliberate practice we call it purposeful practice. Mm-hmm. How purposeful is our practice? Mm-hmm. So one of the interesting things about baseball is. For, for, you know, a century, we've been taking batting practice from 50 feet at 60 miles an hour, which does absolutely nothing to develop or prepare you to play in a game. Hmm. So if you, if you were able to step outside of the tradition and think, what would prepare you? Um, and mm-hmm. so if you look like Joe Madden, the Cubs don't, they took BP, I think the year they won the World Series, they took BP 20 games out of 81 games. Yeah. Whereas the traditional mindset is hit, 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 hit more. Right. Hit early, hit on BP. Yeah. But that type of hitting is almost like just mind candy. It doesn't really... So there's no evidence that that actually leads Well, there's to evidence it doesn't. Because of injury? Or because of injury and because it doesn't replicate. It, it may be that it is part of a routine that helps you mentally prepare for right. playing the game. Yeah. But from a skill development, mm-hmm. it does nothing. Yeah. It does nothing, skill mm-hmm. development-wise. Have you looked at, uh, or maybe you, you've talked to Bill Belichick, who's legendary for it. You're talking about yeah. preparation. And before that, um, you know, Bill Walsh, legendary. You know, I'm giving you football yeah. examples. And um, I, I don't know for sure, but you see Belichick's track record, yeah. and you see, you use the word mindful or purposeful, um, um, but there's like really intellectual preparation yeah. uh, where you design a game plan uh, that is precisely customized to your opponent. And in football, you know, there's only so many opponents. You have a whole week. It's a little bit different story than baseball, except maybe for pitchers who have that four or five yes. days that they can, yeah. they can prepare. Um, 
What do you think about about that? Well, the things I've been, you know, I know Bill a little bit. My my brother-in-law was a coach for him for five years, and my one of my best friends is a guy named Scott Pioli who was with him, was his player personnel guy for okay. 10 years in New England mm-hmm. for two Super Bowls. So I actually have been around Bill and know him a little bit. But the, when I talked to even this past spring training with Mike Tannenbaum, who was there for a while as well, you know, Mike's comment, I, and I, I equated Bill's brilliance to his ability to formulate a game plan better than any other person. Mm-hmm. Mike said what separates him is not just the game plan, but his ability to translate it into very simple, digestible um, uh, format that almost any player could apply, whereas mm-hmm. most most people can't do that. So it's, mm-hmm. it was more of the, the separation, and I think this is actually true with almost – yeah, anyone can come up with a good idea. There's a million people, but the execution, right. you know, mm-hmm. the ability to distill it and then mm-hmm. execute it mm-hmm. is kind of where the separation lies. Yeah. And Bill's ability to come up with a brilliant game plan that's as good, if not better, than anyone else, but then translate it in a way that was e- is easy for players to actually apply and execute yeah. from different cultures. Which, which different is levels. why there's always these players revolving door of unknown or relatively unknown players, and they perform at a yeah. higher level. For Belichick, it yeah. seems. So I would imagine his awareness, like his his his, and and it's funny because he comes off as probably the least compassionate, empathetic person in the world. And I, my words I use for awareness of others is empathy and compassion because yeah. that resonates with me. Yeah, he probably doesn't think of it in that way, yeah. but something tells me his awareness of other people mm-hmm. and his ability to kind of think about. Okay, I've got Tom Brady. But then I've got, you know, this urban inner city wide receiver, you know, whose education level is probably eighth grade that I've got to think about how Mm -hmm. I get the game plan to him. And I got to go two different ways of delivering that. And so I'm guessing that he he's not coming up with one, just giving one thing. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because one of the things I um, I found when I studied the super boss leaders uh, is how they customize how they work with each individual on their team. It's not okay. a one-size-fits-all. And because different people are motivated in different ways, people like to work a little bit differently. Yeah. People need different development opportunities. People need different degree of, of how hands-on you're going to be, yeah. how much you're going to delegate. I mean, you could think of you know, dozens of variables how you work with each person. Mm-hmm. And these super boss leaders, they... They, f- they figure out what works best for that person and they adjust their personal style. It's yeah. very interesting because a lot of people in the leadership world talk about style. You have a management style and they also tell you you got to be authentic. So, and you, yeah. I always say you combine that. You say, well, my style is to be you know, very directive and i got to be authentic. i got to be true to myself, which is the opposite of customizing to the individuals on your team. I, so I've, I've read that. I've read your, I've read your book, but I, I think... When I think about that, so I, my, my thought on leadership is kind of, and everyone has different words, so I think I look at it as the baselines of leadership are just awareness, communication, prioritization. And awareness has two components, and they are progressive, like, and, and that, those, that triangle is progressive. So awareness starts with self-awareness, mm-hmm. and that is yeah. authenticity, but I kind of call it peace. Like, I've never met sustainable leaders mm-hmm. who don't have a sense of peace about them. And by peace, and again, I'm a little bit more maybe touchy feely. I'm definitely not I'm picking being, that up. I'm surprised. Yeah. So I'm maybe not your yeah. iconoclast. You know, I'm, I'm maybe I'm, I'm sorry. I'm maybe more. I'm a nurturer and iconoclast. I'm definitely not the glorious bastard. Yeah, yeah, definitely not that. So I, I feel like 
the greatest strength is being at peace with who you are and yeah. knowing your values. And that's a journey and that's an effort and that's pain yeah. and that's understanding your, mm-hmm. you know, very strong awareness of, okay, when I'm happy, fulfilled, at peace, content, who am I with? What am I doing? Where am I? Yeah. And when I'm, when there's dissonance in my life, yeah. what brings the dissonance? So again, I talk to young people all the time. Mm-hmm. I say, don't get as focused on what you're doing. Mm. Get as focused on, spend more time on who you're doing it for and in what culture you're doing it. And if you think about that way, the mm-hmm. beauty of that is you'll unlock mm-hmm. 20 different vocations rather than think, I have to work in baseball to be happy. Yeah. And so they tend to associate happiness and fulfillment with what they're doing. Right. Whereas I would argue that who you're doing it with and who you're working for mm-hmm. is much more a source of fulfillment and happiness. Mm. So if you start with that awareness of self, peace, content, you know, and you're, you're constantly working on those things, and then you take awareness of others, which is compassion and empathy for me, which is deeply thinking about who am I sitting across from before every meeting? Mm-hmm. What are their goals, aspirations, mm-hmm. desires? Mm-hmm. What's their background, their culture? Mm-hmm. And so it's not a matter of I'm going to cater my style to them. It's just a matter of being aware. Like, right. who are they? I can't talk mm-hmm. to every person the same way. Like, their culture's different. Their background's different. Yeah. Their goals and aspirations are different. I want to know those things. Yeah. And just taking the interest mm-hmm. and then viewing the relationship as a covenant, right? Like, I'm going to expect very strong work from you very strong Mm -hmm. I'm going to expect you to make Mm -hmm. us better Mm -hmm. but in exchange for that I'm going to commit to helping Mm -hmm. you achieve your goals like that's that's part of the covenant I that's open like it's not something I'm shying from and you say that actually to people all the time absolutely people that work for you they report to you I take it as when someone joins our organization I meet with every person regardless of what level Mm -hmm. and I take it personally when they make a decision to come here yeah that you know and if you look back at like what we did with the Indians the track record is what the Indians are known for more than winning are there's eight guys leading major league teams That's that right. started as interns. So mm-hmm. we all took that with a great sense of pride. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the core of every single thing we did was hiring. Like we felt like if we hired well, everything else takes care of itself. But we obsessed about hiring mm. and obsessed about hiring interns, obsessed about interns. hiring interns. Because if you hire interns really well, you never have to worry about hiring anybody else. <laughs> yeah, because they're going to just—they're going to stick. They're right. Going to, yeah. Well, the succession's in place. But what happened in Cleveland that accounts for all these GMs coming out of one one institution? The, so ex- exactly what I just told you. Like we was it one person? I mean, so John I, Hart played a role back. So in those I would days. think if you if you want to trace it all the way back, it probably gets traced back to John Hart and Dan O'Dowd hiring me. You know, not me. It gets back to them hiring me. Yep. I was yep. a non-traditional baseball executive at the time they hired me and they um, each in their own very different way believed in me and empowered me and then we underwent exponential growth Mm. in like two years so I got promoted and elevated to positions I should never have been doing (laughs) at a very young age 24 Mm. 25 years old Mm -hmm. and then you know I think I was aware of how much I benefited from their belief in me and from us taking a different path at looking at different different people, not being a slave to the same mm-hmm. pattern of just hiring. And so <clears throat> we instituted a process of hiring that, that elevated <clears throat> to this day is still being elevated where we were said we can compete with the best and brightest for the best and brightest 
with any organization, uh-huh. Wall Street, anywhere, mm-hmm. go after the best talent that exists, and then bring those people into a culture that empowers them to make, to make an impact right away. So it's identifying, creating a rigorous hiring process, yep. making sure it's aligned with your values, and then bringing in, them into a culture where you weren't expecting them to just do data entry and pick up lunch. The goal, you know, the, the open articulation with the Indians culture and now here is the day you arrive, you're expected to make us better. And you, t- and you tell them that. Yes. Yeah. And, and then we demonstrate that because an entry-level intern's in the room for a trade. You know, the entry-level in- right. intern's, <clears throat> excuse me, is in the room when we're having our off-season strategic planning sessions. So they're getting a seat at the table at the age of, you know, 22, 22, 23, 23, 24. And they're expected not just to sit there, uh, but to come up with ideas or thoughts or con- If or they contribute. have them, you know. Yeah, I'm, that's right. Right, that's right. right. So, yeah. I mean, they, they, yes, they're going to still have some, some grunt work to do, you know, but mm-hmm. the thought is you may have 30 to 40 hours of grunt work, but what you do with the other 40 hours yeah. is going to separate you mm-hmm. in how effective you are at, at progressing in this organization. Yeah. And you're an intern coming in, so you basically have a 12-month contract. Your job is to make yourself indispensable, you know, to us, like add value. And the expectation with every hire is we're seeking out a skill set that is complementary or a level of intellect that is complementary or a, a perspective that is different from what we already have and that that person will add something, be an additive, the day they get there, the day they arrive. Mm-hmm. It's not that we need to train them. Yes, they will have to go through a cycle and understand mm-hmm. the technical aspects of the job. Yep. But the expectation is make us better, you know, help make me better. Help me. So, that, again, that gets yeah. back to a learning culture, right? Mm-hmm. Like if we're you, – you need to – you know this probably more than me seeing generations of students. You need to fight to stay relevant. Relevance is extremely temporary, mm-hmm. extremely temporary. And so I'll tell guys all the time, if we were still making trades the way I made them, I was a part of making them in, in you know, 1995 and 1994, I would be out of the game mm-hmm. 10 years over. We were making them with stat books in our lap, raising our hands, calling scouts. You know, it was, it was very yeah. different. So yeah. I've had to evolve. We didn't have scouting reports were behind John Hart's desk and filing cabinets. Paper file, you know, paper scouting reports. That's what it was, right? Yeah, that's what it was. So think about how different that is now. And so you need to stay relevant. To stay relevant, you've got to keep infusing new talent, you know, because the bar just keeps elevating. Yeah, which is going to be exciting and attractive to high aspiration people, not to everyone. Some people will be afraid of it. And maybe that means that you use, use the word alignment. Maybe the fit's not going to be there. Yeah, we want someone that that places a premium on working in that environment, yeah. right? That places a premium on saying that, and this is a lesson I definitely took away from being the dumbest guy at Princeton, you know, when I was there, right? Like you, you know, I, I, I went into Princeton and nothing about me was remarkable. If you looked at my high school experience, I was fine. I was a mm-hmm. fine student. Yep. I was a fine athlete. I was a fine guy. I wasn't president of the class. I wasn't most likely mm-hmm. to succeed. But you, you immerse yourself in any elite environment, and I use elite in a way that is a positive, not a negative, but people with basically just people with high standards and expectations for themselves mm-hmm. and others, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're just, they're competitors, whether it's intellectually competitive, whether it's analytically competitive, whether it's 
athletically competitive. They're competitive. And they have high expectations for themselves. Mm. You drop yourself into a culture where everybody around you has extremely high expectations of themselves, extremely high standards. And, you know, and you find, I just raised my own. I, I, I didn't even know what was happening. But, you know, from immersing myself in that environment, my expectations just raised. And so I always thought, why not build a business like that? Yeah. You know, don't just have, you know, I left Princeton and went in my first business. I was like, oh, I can succeed here. And I, that's, that was confidence for me because I held my own at Princeton being at the bottom of that it, class. Isn't that a powerful thing, you know, when you discover you actually are okay, not just okay, yeah. but good. And, right. Uh, it's, um, those, uh, those types of moments in, in one's life are things you never forget. And I, I often say people, uh, people can give you that opportunity. They can put you into a place where, yeah, you can fail, and some will, but you can, you can, you can make it. You can do something you never thought you could do before. And when that happens... Um, the confidence level is incredible. And without confidence, it's really hard to do. To do yeah. Um, I've and, seen and it. it takes reflecting a little bit, I think, to go yeah. back and go, okay, let me, you, know, you try to unpack it, like you said, and, and yeah. come back. What what has been What just happened here? Yeah, what was right. important to but me? But at a gut, don't you, I mean, I, I feel like you you kind of know at a gut level, oh, my God, you know, I don't know what, what, what happened here. I don't even want to, I don't even think about how afraid I was three years ago yeah. before I started this. Uh, but now I'm ready for the next one. You get hungry. You get greedy for the yeah. next thing. And maybe that's what competition is to some extent. I don't know. Uh, but you, uh, you said it also. You just want to excel. You want to, you want to get better for yourself, for who you are, right. for what you want to accomplish in your life. And that growth, I think, becomes like insatiable, right? The growth is the understanding that you're never done. There is no complete. There is no end date. You know, like I'm not ever going to be a finished product as a leader, as a person, intellectually yeah. like the day I think I'm done the day I think I have figured out that's like your comment about um, you know the the expertise like the yeah. day you think you have it figured out you're pretty much done you're done yeah because you're not you stop learning and you stop evolving and you stop getting better um, I wonder whether some of this people listening to this some of the people are thinking well, this is crazy I mean I gotta I gotta make a living I have a family uh, yes I want to learn that sounds good but it's easy for these guys to talk about it you know he's running the Blue Jays he's this Ivy League professor uh, they could say what they want but uh, it's just not so easy to do to do this. Yes, in theory, I would love to be a lifetime learner, but I got to get my job done, and I got a boss who doesn't care as much about learning as yeah. maybe you know uh, Mark does or Sid does. Well, I would say to that person that the only the only sustainable competitive advantage that exists, and you're ultimately trying to compete, is learning. Like the only ability, the only so which is kind of philosophical, you know. Yeah. So I know it's a little bit soft, I think. But if you just think about that in the most simplistic of ways, if you are focused on learning, so I would, you know, we if you walk around the Blue Jays, you'll see everywhere written "Get better every day." Yeah, get better every day. That's it. It's the most the simplest mm-hmm. mission statement in the world. Get is that better what you day. call your mission statement? Yeah, well, get it's better. get better every day to bring world championships to Canada, yeah. you know. and But if you think about getting better every day, it's mm-hmm. universal. It mm-hmm. applies to a trainer. It applies to an intern. It applies right. to, to a anyone. ticket taker. It applies to the CEO. And it yeah. applies to, you know, any anybody in the building, a mid-level mm-hmm. manager. But if, if, you, if you can think about exponentially scaling, getting better every day, mm-hmm. if you've got an organization full of former people who wake up thinking about – how can I be better today? In one, some small way, in some mm-hmm. little way, and you're applying that not just to how you live your life, but how you do your job. Mm-hmm. You're gonna, you're gonna 
probably advance in your career. You're going to do better. You know, so it's a little bit believing in process and not not as much focusing on the outcome. The outcomes follow. You know that process. The outcome followed that insatiable thirst for improvement. So it is not a touchy feely learn. You know, learning's just I call it a learning culture. Mm-hmm. It's about getting better. And you know, and, there's and a so, championship in your case. That's what's at the end of the that's, sentence. That's, that's what that, it's about. That's the outcome. Be in a position to win a championship. So a player that wakes up every day thinking about getting better mm-hmm. is going to think, okay, there are a lot of things I can't control. Right. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of things. I can't control what, where, the, where the manager hits me in the lineup. I can't control the weather. I can't control the umpire. I can't control that my kid was sick last night and I only got four hours of sleep. Instead of thinking about what you can't control, wake up and think about the thousand things that you can control every day, from the amount of sleep you got to what you ate for breakfast to you know, what you're reading in the morning over, mm-hmm. you know, over your eggs and cereal to when you get in your car – um, what you're listening to, to when you get out of your car, maybe most importantly, how do you treat that parking lot attendant? And then when you walk down the hall, how do you treat the custodian? Mm-hmm. And then maybe importantly for the team, when you get next to your locker, how do you treat your teammate next to him? Then you go to the video room. Are you just watching video? Or are you watching video with intent? When you go to the training room, are you just checking the box? Mm-hmm. Are you thinking about how do I keep myself you know, on the field and healthy? Mm-hmm. When you take batting practice, are you just rotely hitting you know balls or are you thinking i'm going to actually be conscious and aware and think about my swing in a deliberate way and i'm going to practice with intent yeah so there are if you live your life with intent there are hundreds of things you can do every day which Mm -hmm. you can keep getting better at doing Mm -hmm. which can help lead to better outcomes and more consistent outcomes and increased level of awareness of what you're doing there's a very strong mental health component to what you just said because you talked about well you can't control your kid was sick you can't control the umpire etc etc people spend so much time worrying about things you can't control and that's that 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 gets you down it gets you depressed it gets you it means you're not willing or able to kind of change your life and get get better focusing on the things you can control even if they're baby steps yeah. start to add up so that's i mean i would call it just in, in business terms i call it inefficiency right like if you're mm-hmm. focusing on the things you can't control that's inefficient like mm-hmm. and it becomes an excuse and it becomes a reason why you're not successful so why do so many people do this um i think human nature is we you know the our insecurities dominate are the biggest derailer of performance and we want to come up with reasons why we shouldn't be successful because it's a you know and and because here's the reason every one of those reasons is objective and real so i wake up every single day with reasons why we shouldn't be successful the exchange rate is a 30 percent tax on the toronto blue jays that doesn't exist for 29 other teams Mm. you know the unique ownership structure is sometimes an advantage but often a challenge you know for the toronto blue jays the um, I mean, there are the AL East is an inequitable place to play with the two of the top three payrolls every single year mm-hmm. that are behemoth markets in a game where the the way we share revenue is not equal and provides a distinct advantage. So they're going to have seventy five percent to one hundred percent more resources than us every single year. Mm-hmm. So there's a million the, reasons that's why a gigantic number, right, by the way. <laughs> so right, so there are a million reasons why objectively we shouldn't yeah. succeed. So instead of focusing on well, it's an unwinnable situation. I think okay, what are five hundred incremental advantages that we can can actually mm-hmm. control? That mm-hmm. if we do really really well mm-hmm. repeatedly over a long period of time, we will overcome those challenges, and we'll we'll be our energy will be spent on finding yeah. incremental 
competitive advantage, incremental efficiencies that collectively, and this is where it gets back to to resonating with my core values, with what I believe. Mm-hmm. I want to work in a place where everybody matters. Yeah. And my leadership style is to convince everybody that they matter. And we have the greatest, just like in Cleveland, where you had 27 teams you had to, you know, they're outspent you. Here we've got the two giants in our division and one of the best-run franchises in the game, the history of the game, probably in Tampa. So we've got to wake up every day thinking we've got to be really good, but not just me. Yeah. Not just Ross Atkins, who's the GM. Yes. Not just Andrew Miller, who's the EVP of business. Every single person, the trainer working in complete anonymity in mm-hmm. Florida in 100-degree weather with no one watching yeah. the rehabilitation mm-hmm. he's doing has to have such a high level of pride mm-hmm. of the importance of his mm-hmm. work or her work mm-hmm. that they know that we're not going to be successful if I'm not, really, I'm not the best at what I do. Yeah. So the competitive advantage you're talking about that you're searching for that you're building is about culture. It is so that you you. It's amazing that you just distilled that. So the Peter Drucker quote, well, you know, culture eats strategy. I mean, strategy. It's culture eats strategy culture, every day for right, lunch or right. something. So, yeah. so I, I actually, I, well, I think that's I love culture, and I love, but I'm a I'm a big believer in strategy. Mm-hmm. You know, I love strategy. So I take that out. I say no. Culture is our strategy. Mm-hmm. You know, I want strategy. Strategy means there's linkage to me. That's the way I say mm-hmm. strategy means there's linkage to everything we're doing. So I want yeah. strategy. Mm-hmm. But culture is our strategic advantage. So if you come to work here or if you work for the Cleveland Indians, you'll recognize that being part of this organization, being part of something big, mm-hmm. understanding that every single person is important, understanding that we are not hierarchical, that it yeah. is not about me. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's not about you know, the Matt Charlie Montoya, our manager, it is about us collectively. It's about everything we, everything we do, any success we have or any limitations we have is going to be completely a reflection of our collective effort. And, and so to do that, you have to live that hump, humility, that openness, that curiosity, that thirst for improvement and, that that respect and trust that you know I'm going to be de- I'm it, it's I'm dependent on no weak links. We can't have a weak link. It cannot. That that's I know it's impossible, right? Like we're never going to have a hundred percent. But it, it never happens. But right. that doesn't mean you can't shoot for so as that's close where, as you possibly so can. So that's why I wake up every day thinking. You know, people ask me what you know when will you be? You know, what do you what do you want to do as a leader? I like I, my job as a leader will be complete, which will never happen. Mm-hmm. If no matter where I walk in this organization, Mm -hmm. whether it's the service level of this stadium, whether it's on the field, whether it's our spring training facility, whether it's Lansing, Michigan in our Midwest League affiliate, Mm -hmm. whether it's scouting in Dominican with our Dominican scouts, if no matter where I walk, every single person feels like their work is crucial and important to our effort. Because if they feel that way, they're going to do exceptional work. Mm -hmm. You know, if they don't feel that, when people only do average work or mm-hmm. below average work, it's when they don't feel connected to the outcomes. They don't feel connected to the organization. It's, they it's, don't feel... It's, uh, so I think it's, I think it's right, but it presupposes something you said earlier, which is you've got to have some raw talent to start with. You can oh, have yeah. people working like crazy, but I bought in 100% to what you're talking about. Yeah. But some people can't do it. They just don't Well, I think you that. wrote that like... They're, yeah, I mean, the intelligence is kind of presupposed. You need, you need yeah, there's certain criteria that you, right. that you need. And so you got to hire really carefully, as you say you do, right? Yeah. And then if you have reasonably good talent, um, let's say even better than reasonably good, but really good talent, 
this cultural thing that you're building, that you've built and you continue to build, that, you're, that is ongoing, really could be a competitive advantage. The thing about culture that is powerful from a strategic point of view is it's very, very hard, difficult to replicate. Uh, you can replicate some new analytical technique that someone at the Absolutely. Yankees has figured out or the Dodgers have figured out. Um, maybe it'll be a very short-term thing for them because they've come, they found some genius physicist that came up with some new metric right. that somehow they're using, but although it's not very likely. Uh, but that will become known, and you can replicate that. That's hard yeah. to keep that secret. And to, to even peel that back a little more, um, that I believe that 100%. So you, you, we need to have the best embrace. We need to have the best models, decision-making models. We need to have the best analytics department. Mm-hmm. We need to... We need to be as good mm. as the Dodgers and as good as the Yankees and mm-hmm. as good as the Indians and the Cubs and mm-hmm. the Astros, the best team. A lot, team, the a best. lot of good teams. There. Right. So we need to be as good as them analytically and in our systems mm-hmm. and in the, the intelligence of the people that work here. Where I feel like we can beat them is we need to be free of ego, free of credit, free mm-hmm. of blame. So when I think about Bill Belichick, the one thing I think has resonated for me with the, the Patriots over – you know, whatever is five Super Bowls and is six. in six. They don't spend any energy on credit or blame. None. Like it, maybe it's deteriorated over the last two or three years for the mm. first time in the history of their run. Mm. But they're just focused on getting better and and, and attacking and competing and yeah. you know. So I've always thought that to me was the most admirable thing. But we, if we have culture, which exactly what you said, you know, we're, there's a rigor and an obsession with hiring hire really 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 well mm-hmm. you know and think about that then succession's taken care of you're then you're not wasting time managing people mm-hmm. and then you're focused on the culture that people come into after you hire them so they're immediately empowered the expectations are high mm-hmm. of each other you know mm-hmm. and everybody knows how important they are and everybody under, has an alignment of the values that we stand for and the vision that we're that we're working towards so obsess about hiring hire the best and brightest Enter them into a culture, you know, that that people understand our advantage, our competitive advantage is our culture. Then the analytics you deploy, then the systems and processes that you create actually have the ability to impact more than individual decisions, but exponentially over, you know, thousands of decisions every single day. And I think that's where you start to gain competitive advantage. So we can't beat them and having the best resources. Like they can hire more people, they can have better facilities, but we can have people that care a little more, that feel a little more like they're accountable, that have a little greater sense of ownership, Mm -hmm. that feel like, yeah, I know Rogers owns the Blue Jays, but I wake up every day acting as if I own the Blue Jays and hope everybody else acts like they own the Mm -hmm. Blue Jays. Like we all feel like that's the deep level of pride we've got is it's not just you know, a job. This is more. This is more. This it's is not. It's not just a job. That's a yeah. great way to uh, to summarize it. Yeah. Um, we're talking to Mark Shapiro. Let's take one short, quick break and come right back. I just wanted to uh, put this out in podcast land. Um, our podcast is really uh, doing great. The Sidcast has been a lot of fun, and my producer uh, Ben is um, uh, unfortunately for me going back to school. Pretty good for him. Uh, but uh, I, need, uh, I need a replacement. So if you're interested in looking to be a uh, producer, 
uh, of the SIDCast, then um, then drop us a line at the SIDCast. Go to uh, www.thesidcast.com and uh, drop us a note and uh, why you're interested and what your background is, and we, we can bring you in to, as, the next, uh, as the next producer. So we're back with, uh, with Mark Shapiro. We're talking leadership. We're talking the Blue Jays. We're talking about a lot of leadership. It's like fantastic. It's like we're in a little seminar here, and, uh, and, and I'm the student right now, so no, I'm no, loving no, it. Always um, mutual. Always. Um, and, uh, um, and I'm just thinking now about how all this, in a concrete way, translates to, to, to the key part of that mission statement, the end of that mission statement, which is championships. Yeah. How does it translate to the... I understand, you know, the, the the staff. I understand the the leadership. But now we're talking about players, the twenty five on the team, yeah. and and there's more than twenty five that really makes the team because there's a lot of ups and downs. Yeah. How does this all translate? How do they? Uh, I mean, are they are they hearing the, this message? Uh, how are they interpreting it? I mean, they come from a very different place. Very different. Yeah. So I think what they do hear and what they do see. We, you and I, can walk down the locker room, and I'll show you. They'll see get better every day, or they'll see mayor Jorge Caradilla which is get better every day in Spanish. Yeah, you know? yeah, or we yeah. have it written in every single language down in our spring training facility. Mm-hmm. We have it in Portuguese. We have it in, in, uh, you know, in every, any language that in Korean, any language that you know, a player that a country you know, could come from. So they will see that thought that we expect them to get mm-hmm. better. They will hear us talk about um, the value of you know, that we place a premium and a value on being a good teammate. Um, and in a lot of ways, Sid, those things are some of the same things you and I are talking about. It's understanding that the culture, mm-hmm. that the clubhouse, that the locker room, that their culture yeah. has a chance to be a competitive advantage for them. That if they have an efficient environment, meaning um, as we were talking about with the All Blacks, there's no dickheads in there. Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're, they care about each other, that they're committed to helping each mm-hmm. other be better. They're not just focused on yeah. their own individual performance, which when you're talking about the dollars that proliferate professional sports there's a real tendency for a player just to be focused on her his own performance instead of collective success um so how does that translate to what we're doing here every day our jobs on the baseball side are to identify acquire develop and then deploy talent this is the same as Talent. any business, of course. Same you as know any that. business. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. that's why it's analogous. That's yeah. why people say come in and speak to our business about identification and retention and mm-hmm. succession planning and what all those things. Mm-hmm. But so we're identifying talent, whether it's preparing for the draft or whether it's identifying talent we want to trade for. If we make trades this trade deadline, those are it's a constant yeah. thought of identifying. Some people just identify the tools, the skills. You know, we're thinking about identifying players that fit the attributes, characteristics, and traits, mm-hmm. as well as the tools. Mm-hmm. You know, like you said, you can't just, it can't be so touchy-feely that you just get good guys. You know, otherwise yeah. we have a lot of really good guys and never win. So you have to be greedy. You have to look for really talented players that who, love to win and yeah. that are willing to do whatever it takes legally, but whatever it takes to yeah. win. And so the ultimate, to me, the ultimate uh you know, points of inspiration. Uh, I've had an incredible opportunity to spend a lot of time around the Spurs because R.C. Buford is a is a very close friend, and I had a friend that played for the Spurs and got to meet Steve Kerr through that as well as others. And you know, they're the greatest example of your best players are your culture. You can articulate you know what you want your values to be. You can put them up on mm-hmm. slogans on the walls, and every sports team has those. Yeah. Inspira- the reality is Tim Duncan. 
Manu Ginobili. Like, the Spurs were Tony Parker. The Spurs were a reflection of their great players and the values and attributes. So when they identified players, because we're not, we're not giving birth to these players, we're inheriting them yes. when they're 17, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. They're largely formed adults at that point. We can create an environment and culture where we hope they can form some standards we've got. Mm-hmm. But the greatest power is peer-to-peer. The greatest power is that there are already people that hold themselves to those standards and are actually great players as yep. well. And that's what they're watching. It's kind of that the, the sweep the shed idea. It's exactly that, that yeah. idea, right? Uh, it's the it's it's the most successful, most well known players that set the cultural standard in, in the clubhouse. That's the, the and and the same way a player who is your most talented player who is not a good person can bring can lead to a team underperforming no matter how talented he is, yeah, or she is because ultimately they are going to set the tone if they're completely selfish if they are you know not good people that don't care about others if they are not contributing in a positive way then everybody else will just defer to them. And no matter how many other good people you have in there, they're going to ultimately have a negative impact on you're going to over time, you will underperchieve. And so this gets back to, again, it's it is it is philosophical in nature. But the ultimate reality of whether I was in Cleveland or here, the ultimate reality is we have to outperform objective expectations, have to objective expectations for the Indians is being one of the worst bottom five teams in baseball every year. If you, That's because of their payroll, right? Objective ex- expectations for the Blue Jay is perpetual mediocrity, a third-place finish every year for the Red Sox and Yankees. Mm. And no one, no one, first of all, you don't have longevity in this business, and secondly, there's no fun in that. No. You know, I don't, that's not why I'm in it. I want to win, you know, because that's – but I want to win without compromising who we are and what we stand for. And I think that's our advantage. It's how we're going to do it. Because we're not going to outspend. Mm. You know, we're not going to outresource. Mm. You know, we're, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. And um, you're not going to tell me this is right also. You're not going to out-analytic, if there's such a word. Um, I don't think that. I don't think that. I think those, there was a time there we was, did there that. There was a money ball time. There was a money ball. Now, we, and now we it's did it, practice. We did it with the Indians for a period of time, and it was great. We beat people in trades because we have better information. But now... We literally, the gap is so small. It's so small. We are all making inform- We are all making decisions from a very similar, yeah. you know, place. A very similar set of information. So the gaps, the opportunities for either inefficiencies in the marketplace, the opportunities to mine value, are so small that you have to find something I mean, else. This really raises an interesting question because there's a there's a draft, a baseball draft, and and there's trades and there's everything else. If everyone has the same information, now I know that's that's an overstatement, but it's not far off. From it's what not you that said. far off. Yeah. Right? If, if everyone has more or less the same information, and they are disciplined in relying on the data and the analytics, uh, how do you figure out who gets the best players? I mean, how does that happen? It's just a random, not a random draw, because you know what you're getting. But everyone kind of gets there. Um, gets there's no advantage inherent in the player selection process, unless there's this other thing that's not a typical analytics thing so far, uh, which is about character. I think, I think in two things. One, baseball, unlike other sports, the, the system of development is still very much a part of, you know, we've got this galaxy of 200 players that we, you know, we have, and only yeah. 25 are on the major league team. The rest of them are in our player development system. So, yeah. so there's I a lot of time to do stuff with them, and you can, and you can have your brand or your 
skill or your capability. So there. I think there's, if you look back at the history of the game, the one thing that hasn't changed is the way we coach. So this will resonate with you as an educator. You know, I, I, I obsess about education. Like if you look at the books on my desk, they're largely about mm-hmm. educators because I think the way we teach and coach, mm-hmm. teaching and coaching are the same thing. Yes. You know, that there's immense opportunity for us to gain competitive mm-hmm. advantage in the way we coach and the way we teach and the way we maximize potential mm-hmm. and the way we help players be the best they can be and the way we kind of pull out uh, mentally and physically, mentally, physically and fundamentally, we tap into human potential yeah. and help them kind of achieve that, bridge that gap um, as, as much as possible. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So interesting. Um, can I ask you a couple other questions yeah. that go back in time a little bit, kind of switching gears a little bit? Um, so you, you, had, you had an interesting dad in that he was you know, very influential in the business and, and um, helped create the, the modern baseball kind of agent uh, business yeah. um, um, and followed him around when you were, you were a teenager. Uh, is there any any um, particular lesson or word of advice he gave you that sticks with you even now as you think about it? I'm sure there are a lot of things, but if there's one thing that kind of right away kind of pops in your mind as I ask you that question, what might that be? I mean, I think three things. When I think about my dad, three things pop into my mind quickly. You know, the first is just that the way he treated people, you know, and I think that's inherent in the kind of the way he did business and, uh, and the way he and I lead um, which is my dad never quantified people. You know, my mm-hmm. dad, you could walk through the streets of Baltimore, very small city, um, and, you know, he talked to the mayor the exact same way he talked yeah. to the, you know, the valet guy in his, uh-huh. in his building's parking lot, who was, by the way, was at my dad's second wedding and mm-hmm. as a friend for life of his. And, you know, I still know Lee, you know, more than I know who was mayor when I was a kid growing <laughs> up. And, you know, my dad talked to business leaders the same way he talked to, you know, the waitress at the restaurant, like he didn't quantify human beings. Mm. He, he had that inherent belief that every life is as meaningful and as he valuable. He respected people. He, yeah. And so that compassion, that yeah. empathy, right. you know, I think that that that's at the core of, of who I am as a leader. And that is at the core of how my dad lived his life, lives his life. And, mm-hmm. you know, that that very much was there. The second was when, when I was in high school, he said to me, you know, as as every kid around me was obsessed about you know getting to a better college and you know what that meant and all these outcomes down the road and the kind of the the cascade and the waterfall of you know you need to go here and he said listen Mark you know I'm not going to tell you to study more I'm not going to tell you to get better grades I'm not going to tell you to you could, life is a series of of creating options creating alternatives for yourself mm-hmm. and the more options you have. You know, I tend to believe the happier, the more choice you're going to have and the happier you're going to be. So you do better in school, you're going to get more options for college. You do better in college, you're going to get more options for jobs. You do well at your job, you'll get more choices about what careers you can and where you can work and who you can work for and what you can do. And that's all he said. It was pretty simple. I've said it to my kids. And it's kind of profound, though. Yeah. You know, so I've always I've, been a big fan of creating options for yourself yeah, and create for people options. you care about. So I've never, I've never focused on the next job ever. I've never focused on... Advanced career advancement. I've never, you know, that. So in a, a lot of ways, what my dad said was kind of zen. You know, it was mm-hmm. like, you know, focus on doing a really good job at yeah. what you're doing, and that's the way I translate it today. That's why I translated it when I was entry level cubicle dweller in Cleveland. You know, it's like I'm going to be. You know, I don't have to be a GM to be complete. I don't have to be. Never thought I'd be a team president. You know, I don't think about the next job. This. 
you know, I'll do. I just think I'm going to do this one really well. And if I do it really well, I'll have a, I'll have alter, I'll have options to say yes yeah, or no to. It takes a lot of confidence to, to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I've seen all types of people, obviously, teaching, you know, 28-year-olds, MBA yeah. students. Um, and I've been doing it for, you know, probably three decades by now. You do see a lot of differences in how they kind of process that. And it takes, it takes some inner, you know, some of the things we've talked about, confidence, but peace is a word you use, which yeah. I think is, is, is right, uh, is a it's it's an amazing thing if you have that if you have that piece it's a it is it's work it takes work to get there yeah you know because yeah. it means you've done the kind of the you've you've done the because I you know I think back to like t- that 22 to 24 age for me and I I looked up and was like man like all these great institutions you know my dad you know my my prep school Gilman Princeton you know, my family, like all these institutions are a big part of who I am. They've all influenced me, but now I find myself not knowing how do I separate what, you know. So like who's you? What are you? Right. What's your mind? And so I always say to simplify that, it just gets back to like you have to really think about, you know, and, it's, and it can be tough, you know, when I'm happy, when I'm at peace, when I'm content, when I'm fulfilled, you know, who am I with? What am I doing? Yeah. You know, and so it may not lead you to the exact same place. Then you have to be strong enough that it, you know, does can I can I come up with my own standard for success? Mm-hmm. And listen, that's constant, right? Like society, we all get fall into traps where our insecurities start to affect our behaviors, and we think about, you know, I'm not good looking enough, I'm not educated enough, I'm not smart enough. It's a, it's a not, path that gets you nowhere because there's always somebody who has more of whatever you just said. It, it, it's it's unwinnable. Un- yeah. What's the point? Right. So you're going to be on. You're not going to be at peace. You're not going to be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. You're and you're going to yeah. work. And you're 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 placing your fulfillment and happiness in someone else's hands right so right. once you realize i can determine that and i'm yeah. and, and you then you have to constantly stay aware because you can easily slip down the road of why am i doing that like i don't really need it, that it, i don't need that car you know like, is that going to make me happier <laughs> no it's not going to make me happier you know it's, i don't need to live in that house or that neighborhood or you know or go to that school you right. know it's like what what will lead me to be happy and content so um that's a constant process. And so back to my dad, the third thing would just be preparation. Mm-hmm. You know, like I think that that understanding of whether it's a negotiation, whether it's a speech, whether it's, you know, I mean, just a town hall I'm giving, you know, for the Blue Jays, you know, mm-hmm. just one town hall out of four that we give a year, mm-hmm. you know, I can't take for granted I can just walk up there and be mm-hmm. this great speaker that's going to motivate 400 people. You know, I better be, I need to take the time to prepare. Or whether it's my going to my kids' parent-teacher conferences, you know, like if I walk in cold, mm. I'll get something out of it. Right. But if I take the time to be thoughtful, you mm-hmm. know, about and prepare for whatever that interaction is going to be, whether it's meeting with an entry-level, you know, staff person the yep. day they come in here, or whether it's a high-leverage opportunity, which it's easy to prepare for. And my dad was. You know, he was tough. The only thing he was tough on me for was, you know, hey, are you prepared? Like, did you prepare? Interesting. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it takes a lot of discipline um, to do yeah. that. You know, you're also in an unusual job in the sense that the major decisions you make are subject to endless second guessing. <laughs> second guessing is too soft. Free word. advice. Ultra criticism <laughs> in the newspapers and the blogs and, yeah. uh, you know, uh, so how do you how do you deal with that? Yeah, uh, um, I, I would say. It, it it would be completely consistent with the fabric, you know, the themes of kind of everything we've been talking about in this, which is, 
you know, you cannot, um, you need to go back and dissect your process. You need to be happy and comfortable with your process. And was it as good as it could possibly be? If so, you're at peace with those decisions, even knowing that they may take a little time to show themselves to be good decisions. Mm. Um, and then ultimately, you're not placing your self-esteem in someone else's hands. Like, you know, it's not, that's not getting that public approval, mm-hmm. you know. So even in the end, getting it in the end is not ultimately going to make me feel that much better. Mm. It's about, for me, it's about building an organization. It's about developing people. It's about mm-hmm. elevating process. It's about knowing that we got better, to, we did something to get better today. It's about knowing that mm-hmm. we're beating people um, every single day in some little ways and mm-hmm. moving towards this end goal, but that I'm not going to be subject myself to kind of superficial judgment. You know, That's the same kind of judgment that you could say, I'm not good enough because I don't drive a fancy enough car, because I don't wear fancy enough clothes, because I don't live in a certain neighborhood, because my kids don't go to certain schools. Mm-hmm. Like, that's no different than someone, yeah. you know, hopping on the radio and kind of saying you're a moron. <laughs> well, guess what? You're never as smart as they say you are when you're doing well. Mm-hmm. And you're never as dumb as they are, say you are. So just, you can't place your fulfillment, yeah. your satisfaction. It's got to, that's got to be an absolutely essential thing because you can go, you can go crazy. For, for longevity, it is. Yeah. For longevity, right? I mean, you just can't. And, you, and you're human, so you you get a little affected by it. When you see when you see it affect your kids, you know, you get yeah, affected by it. Right. Their friends are saying, I can't believe what your dad did. What's the matter? It's my son really wanting to defend me more. It's like, you don't have to defend me. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm fine. Like, right. we're, we're good, man. Like, yeah. you know, like we're, you know, recognizing. So it's more having those conversations. You understand? Yeah. And baseball is a, such a tough business. You alluded to the blue, to the, um, the, the Yankees and the, and the Red Sox, the amount of money that they've got. And you mentioned Tampa Bay, incredibly well run, very innovative uh, organization. Um, And, um, and, and so it's, it's, it's a really tough situation to get back into the, into the mix where you're in the playoffs. And I I guess once you're in the postseason, there's so much randomness at that stage. That's kind of the name of the game. It's a, it's a little bit like you need to, and this is the hardest thing, right? You have to take a long-term approach in a short-term world. Uh, You know, we're being judged, we're being judged you know, 162 data points a year. You know, you're you're brilliant. You're dumb. You're brilliant. You're dumb. You know, you're. This is a disaster. We need to blow it up. We need to change. If you have the toughness, if you have the resilience, if you have the long term, you know, approach of we're going to keep believing in the building a culture. We're going to keep believing in hiring really good people. But guess what? That approach, Sid, doesn't doesn't pay off immediately. It's the short term. Mm-hmm you know, player personnel decision that might just give an immediate short-term boost. But instead of thinking, we're going to build a rock-solid foundation that when we do succeed is going to be sustainable. Yeah. It's not just going to be a flash in the pan. It's going to be sustainable success. Right, right. One one last uh, baseball question. My Toronto friends will be mad at me <laughs> if I don't ask you about Vlad Jr. Yeah. Uh, having grown up in Montreal and seen and he's, rooted he for his dad. Uh, he was born, that's right he was born in there it, it, so he's a phenom it's kind of amazing all the hype that, that has come with this kid uh, how how is he able to how do you as a team help him deal with I mean he's been in this spotlight forever so maybe it's normal uh, yeah. which it wouldn't be for the typical person but how do you deal with that unbelievable pressure anything short of being an all-star will be a failure in the minds of many people around him yeah listen I don't have I, while I've dealt with Manny Ramirez, Jim Tomey, I mean, dozens of great, probably yeah. future Hall of Famer, current Hall of Famers, 
coming up as young players, I've never ever in my career, almost 30 years, seen a player achieve receive this level of attention at yeah. this age. Wow. So he just turned 20 like weeks ago. 20. You know? mm. Most 20-year-olds would be undergraduate in Hanover, New Hampshire, thinking about, you know, where the next meal's going to be or how they're going to do okay in the midterm and the paper, pulling an all-nighter. And this guy's getting every single at-bat dissected by not just a a city in this case, but a nation Mm -hmm. or an entire industry because he plays for all of Canada, not just Toronto. And it is extremely difficult and challenging. You know, we I think we've done as good a job as we could possibly do at kind of building that trust and that relationship to kind of challenge him to continue to build routines and focus on routines Mm -hmm. um, and focus on the way he prepares and develops himself Mm -hmm. to challenge himself to be as good as he can possibly be. Mm -hmm. But those are like Thoughts I wasn't ready. You know, and yeah, with a very, I wasn't ready at 20 years old to think about 20 those year olds can even think that. So it's right going to be. So here's the deal. I went through this with CC Sabathia, who's getting ready to retire now. Yeah. We drafted him at 17 years old, and if you go back and look at well, everything we went through with CC, there were some tough times. So there's going to be some tough times with Vladdy. There yeah. will be. Mm-hmm. If he learns from those things to ultimately become the best version of himself as a player, mm-hmm. as a man. Both, because they're like we're circling all the way back to the beginning of the conversation. That it's inextricable. I don't even think we were recording yet, but it's inextricable. The man you are, from the player you are, from the leader you are, all those things. Yes. If he can focus on learning from the mistakes that he will assuredly make, if we cannot penalize him for making those mistakes, mm-hmm. but rather help him mm-hmm. learn from those things and make those scars the foundation on what he builds his career on he will be one of the greater offensive forces in this generation. Yeah, wow. But if those things start to define him and undermine him and limit his potential, he'll still be a really good player. Yeah. But not the not that not because that, that raw talent is is there. That it's genetic all, capability is there. Is absolutely. And so something there. good is going to happen. Yeah, I mean, what you just said is also relevant for. I mean, this is a different scenario. Someone in the spotlight in sports, so it gets you know a whole other thing. But when you have great young talent, you hire, um, you know, you hire a 22 year old, you hire an MBA uh, grad who is getting a, a good job, uh, and you are the more senior person. You want that person to succeed, and you want to absolutely. set that person up to succeed. And uh, they're not in the spotlight, like you know. Um, Vlad Guerrero is, but um, in their own way, they are in their own in their own lives. They're in the spotlight. Yes. So having so being able to support them and helping them deal with the mistakes they're going to make, know that's going to happen. All those things are. I so mean, I think that's a generalizable lesson, right? there. I think it is. I mean, you read a lot about psychological safety being such an important yes. factor in, in elite cultures, and so that to me, psychological safety just means that there's there's an understanding that not every decision is going to be a good one, that you're going to make mistakes, um, and I always say. As long as there's rigor and and a good process, there are no there are no mistakes, only lessons. Like mm-hmm. we absolutely use no fear. Like there's nothing wrong. You know, you need to be okay with things not all turning out optimally. Where that's not acceptable is where the process wasn't elite and we didn't have a lot of rigor to it. Because if there is rigor and if there is a good process, we can learn from it and we will get better. And the next time will be a better you know a better effort and probably a better outcome. When it's not excusable is when we're taking kind of an anecdotal, you know, throw up against the wall and see what happens because I'm so smart that I just kind of know the right thing and you're not committed to a process. 
Yeah, I mean, it's really, um, it's really consistent to hear you talk about leadership and leadership philosophy and culture in, in, in the way that, that you are, uh, in that, you know, baseball's gone through analytic, analytics revolution and other yeah. sports have, and there's, there's, a, there's a discipline to that thinking uh, in analytics. There's, it's evidence-based, uh, and this is, it's not identical, but it's almost applying a philosophy of sorts to, to the people side from what you're, you're describing. Yeah. Um, which I think is really, really fascinating. Uh, we've been talking to Mark Shapiro uh, here at beautiful Rogers Center. It's been a great conversation. I wish we had another hour and a half, but uh, <laughs> so Mark, I. thank you so much for being with us thank on the Thank you. Sitcast. Yeah, it's humbling, humbling to, to be, have you, you know, with all the great leaders you've been around and the great students you're teaching every day. So send some of those students our way. I think after this, the, you might be getting some calls. <laughs> That's great.